This is episode number 332 with New York Times bestselling author Donald Miller. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off, off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks head to netsuite.com slash greatness netsuite.com slash greatness again head to netsuite.com slash greatness write down things you want to improve write down things you won't tolerate from yourself write down things you never want to see yourself do again be the hero of your own movie I was from Joe Rogan. Welcome, everyone, to this very special episode with Donald Miller. I'm very excited about what we just connected on, and uh, I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. I just did a workshop down in Nashville, Tennessee, for a company down there. Had a great time doing a two-hour interactive workshop uh, with some of the top dentists in the country and uh, really got to connect with people and hear their stories. You know, made it really interactive. It was more about the audience than about me going on stage and sharing my story. And afterwards, I got to connect with, with Donald Miller and really dive in a little deeper about the power of story and really how our own story is important, but really in our businesses and our lives, how making other people the hero of the story is the most important thing, making it about other people and how can we do this in our own lives, in our relationships, in our businesses, and we really dive in about this. We really dive in deeper in this episode. Now, for those of you who don't know who Donald Miller is, he is a student of story. He's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Blue Like Jazz, also A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, and the most recent book, Scary Close. He has served on the Presidential Task Force for Fatherhood and Healthy Families, a joint effort between government and the private sector to rewrite the story of fatherlessness in America. And currently, he helps people live a better story and helps leaders grow their businesses at storybrand.com. And in this interview, we break down a number of things, including how changing the story you tell about your business can increase your customers and sales. Also, why your customer should be the hero of the story. The seven questions that every business owner needs to answer for their customers to understand 
their story in a simple way, the importance of growing relationships outside of your business, what it was like for Donald to grow up without his father, and then the reunion that he had with his father many years later. We also talk a lot more about intimacy in one of his latest books called Scary Close. We go in pretty deep here, so I hope you guys enjoy this one. And also, we did a full video interview with Donald in his home in Nashville when I was there this past weekend and have some incredible photos of him and his dog, Lucy, and also got some incredible photos of him in the backyard by his riding shed with his dog and uh, just had an incredible time. So make sure to check out these beautiful photos. The full video interview as well is back at lewishouse.com slash three three. Two. And without further ado, let me introduce to you the one, the only, Donald Miller. Welcome back to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited about our guest today, Don Miller. Good to see you, man. Very good to see and you. And thanks for having me in your home. Yeah, welcome. It's nice. We're, we're really here. glad you're here. We're here. We're hanging out. Lucy's enjoying yep. uh, the scenery. She's holding down the fort. <laughs> and uh, I'm very excited. We met through Michael Hyatt probably like... That's right. Probably like eight to ten months ago, yeah. there was a a dinner that we called Na- the Nashville Mafia. Yeah, and me and you were both at. I was the only one not from Nashville that was invited to the dinner. That was so. an amazing night. It was a cool night. Yeah, right? was, yeah. Was, Jeremy Cowart was there. Rory Vaden was there. Yep. Jeff Goins, John Acuff was there. Yes, Josh Axe. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I now, I think that's where I met Rory too. And Rory really? and I are now friends. He's an amazing guy. Does He's amazing guy. stuff. And you and I are friends. So yes. Mike brought us all together. It was kind of nice. Brought us all together. And uh, I really didn't know much about you until that night, and then I was researching more. And you're a three-time New York Times bestseller. Your first book was called uh, Blue Light Jazz, right? That's right. I'm so grateful for that book, like 15 years ago. And it sold like a million copies or something crazy. Something like that. And, yeah. That it's kind of puts that one-hit on wonder. It's like, it's my fire and rain. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, it works for you. No. It works. You just say, yeah, give me one hit. So you wrote that book, and then I heard from Nigel that... You were going to create a movie out of it or write a movie script, but That's then, right. but then they said it was a boring movie. Yeah. They said my life was too boring to be turned into a movie, so we had to make things up. And then you decided to write the second book, right? Well, that book is about, uh, having screenwriters come in and edit your life to make it more interesting. Huh. And so the premise of that book is what if you actually lived more interesting in the first place? using techniques that storytellers have used over thousands of years to, to have a meaningful life. And that book, I mean, the stuff that happened so that I could write that book changed everything for me. So what, what happened? I mean, you... Well, like for in a, in a movie, Lewis, you know, uh, a character needs to be, uh, they need to have a single focused desire to accomplish a thing or the movie won't work. So if Jason Bourne wants to... They need a goal. To, they need a vision. They need a goal. So if Jason Bourne wants to know who he is... Uh, and also marry the girl, and also lose 30 pounds, and also run a marathon, you lose the audience. And so what I learned from that was I can't wake up every day and wonder what today is going to be about, unless I'm intentionally taking a weekend off and you know exploring that kind of mental space. I've got to wake up every day and go, no, this is the overall goal that we're trying to accomplish. This mm-hmm. is where life is heading. I need a filter so that I can say, you know, I'm not going to do this because it doesn't help me accomplish this, right. which is not what I want to have to back. And then suddenly... Uh, life becomes very interesting. Where before, mm. you know, a lot of us are sitting in the movie theater of our brain, and like our cameras are, our eyes are like cameras, and we're watching the movie and we're saying this movie sucks. Sure. And I'm saying, well, there are ways to fix it. You know, have have uh, determined goals, mm-hmm. uh, face challenges, almost with a sense of anticipation rather than reluctance. If if you have a a, a character in a movie who avoids challenges, you have no movie. Right. If you have, there's got to be conflict. There has to be conflict. And the character has to face it because, uh, that's the only way to accomplish the goal. And the only way that we actually change, it's true in movies and it's true in life, is by overcoming hard things. That's it. Right. You can't change by being happy. You can't change by experiencing joy. Joy is what you experience after you overcome the challenge and your character is transformed. Mm. So we love joy, but joy is the byproduct of work. And a lot of us want joy. We don't want the work. And so would you say that in order to continue to experience joy, we must experience some type of discomfort and pain? Or do we stop at one point and we're well, happy for the rest of our lives? discomfort and, and pain, and, you know, there's tragic pain that we all experience. But, right, but right. I, I only mean that, in, of course, we don't want to heap that on ourselves. Sure, sure, uh, sure. But life is embedded with challenges, yeah. and goals are embedded with challenges. The harder something is to attain, the more we value it. Right. 
And so uh, if we don't have to work hard to attain something, we don't actually value our lives. We don't appreciate it either. Right. It's all old. It's Victor Frankl's yeah. Man's Search for Meaning, Logotherapy, uh, overlaid with story principles. Uh, sure. But what I love about it is, you know, I wrote that book, Blue Like Jazz, and it, it hit the New York Times. It's been almost a year there. And that had been my goal for a long time. And yet w- when I accomplished that goal. To write the book or hit the New York Times? Both. Both, yeah. Yeah, since high school. I'd written down one wow. of my goals was to be a New York Times bestselling author. So it took about 12 more years to do that after high school. And, uh, and you know, that was a real 10 years of learning to write and, mm-hmm. and getting out there and hustling. And when I accomplished that goal, the next year was one of the most depressing. Isn't that funny? Yeah. And you would think, you know, if you would have sat me down in high school and said, listen, if you hit the New York Times, you're going to get depressed. But then what I realized was it wasn't that I was depressed because I hit the New York Times. It was depressed because I'd reached my goal. My story ended, and I didn't have a new one. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. And so as soon as I went, I'm going to write a new story now with my life, it all picked right back up again. Yeah. That's interesting because every time, you know, my dream was always to be an All-American athlete, then professional sports. And every time I achieved it, it was like I was the most miserable person to be around. Yeah. Like 15 minutes later, I was like, now what? Yeah. You know, in this book, Million Miles, um, with a team of folks, I rode my bike across America. We started in L.A. and we ended in D.C. Wow. How long did it take? About seven weeks. We took Sundays off, but it took about seven weeks. And um, I knew that a week after we got to Delaware, I was going to fly back to Portland where I lived, and I knew I would get depressed because that much adrenaline and that focus every day and then waking up and have nothing to do and so I ended up jumping into the um, uh, the Obama campaign when he was trying to beat Hillary mm-hmm. in the primaries and then stayed on the campaign through the uh, general election. Of course, he got elected and ended up with a little job in the White House on a task force. And But I, the only reason I did that... So you were working with Obama then? Well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I was working with an extremely... Uh, I had the most boring job ever. I sat and reviewed all sorts of stuff on fatherhood and healthy, healthy families. Then we wrote a book for the president, mm. and he, he did everything that we asked him to do. Wow. So it was a task force, which is a, it's, gotcha. it's a different thing. Um, but the point is that, um, you know, I think some of our goals, they kind of have to be like a trapeze thing. When we accomplish one, we need to have our hand reached out for the next one. So we need to already plan ahead. I think we need to plan ahead. We can't just say this is the end yeah. and then figure it out then. We should have like, this is this year's goal plus four years plus. Yeah. And then inside of that, as you know, daily goals, daily yeah. goals to, yeah. to, you know, small steps to reach there. Wow. And this is research. There's got to be 500 books that sure, back up sure. this idea. But a lot of us, we know it, but we just, we just don't live it. Right. And how much of your work is um, connected to, you know, the hero's journey and the call to adventure with uh, uh I think Joseph, Joseph Campbell. Campbell's a genius. I mean, I think yeah. he's right on so many fronts. There's some, the idea that myth was created to explain life, you know, I think uh, uh, is there's validity to that. But I also think there's an imprint in the DNA of myth uh, that came from somewhere. Right. And so uh, he makes me a little uncomfortable when he begins to dismiss the possibility of something that also, uh, a, a true myth, a myth, you know, the existence of a God and these kinds right. of things. He, he's more or less dismisses that stuff, but you can't deny his genius. And, and, uh, and so I think the, the hero's journey has, and, and along with, uh, Robert McKee's work and Blake Snyder's work, and especially Christopher Booker's work, the seven basic plots okay. have informed, uh, my understanding of story and how I use that to help people live a better life and also how to clarify brand messages and right. what we do now. Got it. So you wrote that second book, and then Scary Clothes just came out recently, correct? It's yeah, it came out, out a year ago. About a year ago. And it's um, Dropping the Act and Finding True Intimacy. Now, why this book, and how does the storytelling play into Scary Clothes? Well, I used a, some storytelling principles to write the book just to sort of edit it down, and, uh-huh. and so it's an easy book to read because of that. But the story behind the book is, you know, I got married at 42 years old, so I spent... 42 years single mm-hmm. and was just uh, not the best guy <laughs> to date. You know, sure, sure. Not the guy. I, I was just a, you know, there were all sorts of issues, codependency and father-related issues coming out of my background and these kinds of things. And so uh, basically I would, I would meet a girl, we'd date, uh, it would get really serious and then it was time to, you know, mm. tie the knot. She wanted to get married and then I'd Ready. Yeah, yeah, I'd go to the next one. And I think that's fine, uh, except when you're sort of leading them to believe that's where it's going. And that's what you were doing? That's what I was doing. 
And so I did that a few times. And one, it was we broke off an engagement. Uh, she got she proposed. I proposed. There was a ring on her finger. But you knew it wasn't. I knew. You were right for you. Yeah, I knew, and I was going through the motions because I thought this is the right thing to do. You know, I should finally tie the knot, and then it just you know fell apart, and she got hurt, and and so I had some friends, very kind friends, sit me down and said, you know, you got to deal with this stuff. And I went off to this place called On-Site Workshops. A guy mm-hmm. named Miles Adcox runs this place here in Nashville, actually, about an hour outside of town. And, it was, and I did seven days of therapy that uh, it, they say is nine months of therapy in seven days. Sure, sure. And it was it, deep. It was deep. It was, we went really, went really deep. I mean, it's stuff like they never like sit and talk like you would talk to. It's a like counselor. a group setting, and there's exercises. Group setting. You're guiding horses around a pen. You're writing letters from your father's perspective to you on the day you were born. I mean, they just have a way. Yeah, of course. Of opening tri- you up. Opening you up. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it was absolutely transformational. Wow. And after that, even my assistant called me before onsite, after onsite. It's like well, before onsite, Don would have done this and. And didn't date for a while and then ran into a gal who was always out of my league. I always liked her. And she smelled in me something that was healthy all mm. of a sudden. And we began to very carefully date and now we're married. And wow. so that, that book is about that transformational journey, that sort of inner mm. transformation of becoming somebody who is trustworthy with another human being's heart. And what do you think was holding you back mostly in these relationships? What was... Were you always putting on a front or this act, or were you yeah, trying yeah. to be this interesting guy? Well, I mean, th- that only lasts for so long, right? Sure, sure. Uh, but I think there was, uh, you know, so many identity issues. What I wanted to be, uh, I got hooked on catch and release, right? Like you're, like you're fishing, you catch, mm-hmm. and then you release, and you the catch. Game, the, the game, all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. And w- the part of it that I liked was being the hero. And the problem is the hero is always looking for somebody to rescue who is a victim. Mm-hmm. And then you rescue the victim, you feel great about yourself, and now you're stuck with a victim, so you resent the fact that you're with a victim. Because they're not growing or they're not yeah, breaking they're, through. They're, and you're like, Yeah, they're being a victim in order to lure a rescuer, and it just, none of it works. Hmm. And so it's, it, you know, there's a triangle that, that you know, it's, it's hero, victim, resentment. And, uh, so you resent I, the person after a certain amount. You resent you, the person, and then you begin to oppress them, and then you become the oppressor of the victim. Wow. And, you you know, uh, a lot of abuse situations end up this way. Sure. And uh, and so I didn't know that I was doing that. And to discover that at on-site and have language around it and to be able to to kind of find my way out of that. And, and now, I mean, all my relationships were so rocky, and I remember when Betsy and I, even a year into our marriage, we were just kind of going, when is the other shoe going to drop? Like, when is this going to get hard? And then we realized it's just not. Like, we're like two healthy people actually work really well together. <laughs> right. and, Who would have uh, thought? And right. then we thought, well, what if our kids hate us? Because there has to be drama, right? And then we kind of went, maybe our kids are going to like us. Maybe this is, maybe sure. just health works. Maybe therapy works. And Doesn't there have to be some type of conflict in every story <laughs> in order to break through? Well, there's, I think there's enough conflict embedded in marriage any- without the unhappy <laughs> unhealth that, right, that right, right. It, it works out. Uh, it's a great story, yeah. <laughs> so what was it like when, I mean, how do you know you're catching a victim? Like, how do we, if someone's single watching right now and they're like, man, this is a pattern I do, but how am I even aware of it? Like, what are the signs we should be looking for? Yeah. So victims have a very high external locus of control. What's that mean? Uh, your locus of control is that thing in you that takes responsibility for your life. They don't have responsibility. They, they, well, they, they, uh, if there's a problem, it's, it's because of something outside of them. They don't take the responsibility That's exactly for the it. problem ever. Yes. So people with very high internal locus of control, uh, they find a way to even take responsibility for things that might not have even been their fault. You know, so uh, mm. you know, if you're on a football team, the guy you want on the team is, uh, you know, the guy who kicked every field goal perfectly, but they lost the game, and he's got, he's trying to figure out how he could have done better. Right. You know, that's the guy you want on the team, not the guy yeah. who's like, oh, those guys screwed it up. Pointing the finger. Me. Yeah, that you, that's yeah. no good. And so uh, victims have a high external locus of control. Problems are other people's fault. Right. And, uh, and to some degree, the victim identity uh, gets them what they want because they've attracted a rescuer. They don't have to take responsibility for their lives. Somebody else is going to do the work for them. There are big benefits to being a victim. Right. And then, when, uh, then you can actually, here's the problem with a victim 
a false victim, because there are real victims in the world, sure, obviously. Sure. But a false victim uh, plays the victim card, uh, and what every victim needs is an oppressor. So if you're in a relationship with somebody who self-identifies as a victim, it's a ticking time bomb on when you are going to be that oppressor. Right. Because you're going to be. Because they're going to need somebody to play that role, and they're going to find a way for that to they're be They're going to make you wrong, or they're going to blame you, or yeah, whatever, even exactly. if you didn't do anything wrong. That's right. They're going to do that. And so... I've had a past girlfriend where it didn't matter what I said, what I did, it wasn't the right thing. Yeah. No, that's... No how good I tried to be. Well, it can't be, because if it's the right thing, she gives up control. Yeah. And as long as, as, long as you keep doing the wrong thing, she's got you. Literally by the nuts. Exactly, man. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why do we... Uh, I think in human nature, do we want to rescue people? Why is that? It seems like our well, psychology, a, right? There's such a great appropriate place for rescuing people, right? Um, there's a, a, you know, when we think about what's going on in Somalia right now, mm-hmm. Betsy and I were just on the Somalian border about a month ago, looking over into, I'm not Somalia, I'm sorry, Syria, mm-hmm. and Somalia too, for that matter. Right. But we were looking over the border into Syria and the atrocities that are having there, I mean, there are you know, legitimate yeah. victims. Henry Cloud defines a legitimate victim as somebody who has no power. They have no power. They they can't. Yeah. yeah. But most you know most people are not in that situation. Right. And you know it's concerning to me in the even in the political landscape that you know there's this sort of anti corporation, anti wealth, anti uh, all this, and they that is somebody a politician baiting a demographic mm-hmm. of people to self-identify as victims and lash out against a uh, an oppressor which is large corporations but you and i know large corporations provide enormous numbers of jobs they Absolutely. provide health insurance they provide the products they provide the, the economy, the economy yeah, everything. all that kind of stuff but i know that i can get a vote by tempting somebody to believe that they're a victim right what's scary about that is the whole american identity is shifting from the hero identity you know mm-hmm. i mean we we built a pretty darn good company our ancestors have yeah and now we're shifting our country and now we're shifting to this identity of a victim and, and yeah. it's a sad deal who was the most influential person in your life growing up? One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so listen we all know life is full of yada yada like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print and i know you've dealt with yada yada before like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else and yes it is possible to outsmart yada yada like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. A guy named David Gentiles. Uh, didn't have a dad. David was a youth pastor at the church down the street. Uh, he took me under his wing. Mm. Uh, he, and we, Even when I was in junior high school, he invited me to a book group where we studied uh, this, this series of 
literature, poetry. And that was my introduction to, to literature. And then he invited me to write an article for the youth group newsletter. I did so. And enough people stopped and said, hey, you're a pretty good writer. It's the only time I'd ever been told I was good at anything. How old, you, how old were you? I was probably, I would have been 13, 13 or 14 years okay, old. Okay, wow. And, um, and it stuck. And I thought, man, I want to be praised more. So Who doesn't I, want to be acknowledged? Yeah, so right? I developed, I just kept working on writing. And, and somehow in there, uh, became began to believe I was a good writer. And so it wasn't that much of a challenge to sit down and put together a book. And then yeah. that book got published and on and off. But so he was the most influential guy, you know, and he and, you know, when you grow up kind of in that uh, poverty model and dad's gone and mom's working her butt off, uh, there's nobody around. And so you do have this feeling that you're a bit of a burden on society. And so David was really the guy that when I walked into his office, he was happy to see me. And he began to counter that idea of you're a burden to you're actually a, a blessing to be around. And that was the that was a formational change in my psyche. Wow. And plus, he was just a great guy. Blue Like Jazz is actually dedicated to him. That's cool. In fact, I um, I he passed away in an accident. He was at a gym lifting, and he and the bar came down. On no us. way. Yeah, and he and he died. And uh, I spoke at his funeral. Now, this guy never wrote a book. He he worked at a church that maybe had fifty people in it when he died. Wow. You know, uh, and then and. His, I delivered his eulogy, and they had to rent a baseball stadium to deliver oh his eulogy. Gosh. There were news cameras there. He had influenced so many people. Talk about impact. Yeah, huge impact. And and the reason is he just believed everybody was everybody was worth being on the planet. Wow. There's something about you. You know, if you're here, you must be important. Right. That was his attitude about life. Like, if you're here on the planet, you must be important. So why are you so important? Let me get to know you. Let me figure it out. Wow. Isn't that amazing? It's a great attitude. <laughs> yeah, really. You just, it's an intoxicating guy. He was that guy. What was the biggest lesson that you learned from him? Well, I mean, I, I think that was it. That, you know, if I'm here, I must be, there must be a reason. I must be, right. there must be, God must be saying something to the world with me being here. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe I can have an impact. I think, uh, you know, it, it took a long time to kind of believe that. But I think the people who have the biggest impact in life are the people who believe they should. Mm. You know, they're supposed to. Yeah. And, uh, I think, Personally, I think that's every human being on the planet. There are just a lot of people who don't understand that right. or believe yeah. it. You know? What was it like growing up without a father that, you know, how did that make you feel? Or did you feel less than because your other friends had, you know, two parents that were there? Yeah, I think how it's kind of like having a, going to the dentist and, and having a toothache fixed and realizing when he fixes it that you actually had the toothache. You didn't. It was just a constant pain there mm-hmm. so uh definitely I, I don't know that i so much thought uh you know my other friends have dads i don't have a dad uh but there was a wealth disparity there that i was definitely on the like other mentor, side of the tracks like and all my friends financial well financial wealth yeah gotcha that i was on the wrong side of the tracks and uh and my friends went off to college and i didn't you know couldn't afford to go to college right and so i went to this little community college on a tuba scholarship <laughs> and the wow. tuba, and all, tuba. Wow. yeah and uh so th- that was there and then uh it wasn't until i was uh 30 or so that i began working on a book called uh father fiction and wrote about growing up without a dad and that was where i began to process some of those wounds yeah. and that led me to actually find my father who, who left when I was two years old. Oh, so he's still alive. I, he's still alive. I oh, found man, wow. him. Wow, what was that him. like? It was, in, it was the scariest moment. Oh, I've my God. Had. You didn't talk to him at all? Never talked 30? to him for t- from, from about two years old. Now, he did visit a couple times in junior high, but I, I really have no memory of much uh-huh. of that. I mean, it was like a lunch or something. And even then, we're just scared of him. Like, who's this man? Wow. And so I called him. I found him through the district attorney, <laughs> called him, and uh, said, I'm your son. And I'd love to come see you. He was in Indiana and drove from Chicago. I was speaking in Chicago and drove to Indiana, knocked on his door, walked in. We spent about two to three hours together. He's just sat there and drank a beer and watched Fox News and, and was, was more nervous than I was. Really? And was unbelievably kind, apologetic. Uh, you know, it was an amazing moment. And he, what was interesting is I didn't, I was only doing it to sort of check it off a list. A buddy of mine had done it with his dad and discovered that his dad had passed away. Uh. And that made me start researching who my dad was. And then discovered he's alive. 
And then um, you didn't want to have the regret, or you want to, didn't want to have the what if if I didn't see him ever. Or something yeah, like I mean that. there was just a sense of you're going to regret this if you don't get this done. Yeah. And are you glad you did it then? Or? I did. Yeah, I glad, I'm glad. He he actually explained why he left. He made some excuses, mm-hmm. uh, and then he looked me in the eye and he apologized. How did make you feel? Uh, you know, I had forgiven him so long ago, but it made me feel really good to just t- say, "Dad, I forgive you." Wow. And that was a, an incredible moment. And I I walked into that house. I might have been 32 or 34, right in there. I walked in still, in some ways, a little boy, and walked out a man. Wow. And, and here's why: because there had always been this kind of cloud over me, saying, "You just weren't good enough for a dad to stick around." Now that was a lie. That's a, that's crap, right? Yeah, yeah. But you just believe it. And then when I met him, I just thought, "Well, this is just a dude who was going through a confusing scared. time. He was scared. He was being kind of run off, you know, by my mom." Yeah. <laughs> He was, he, you know, he, he had the best of intentions, like a lot of people, you know, yeah. we just make stupid decisions and they affect other people, but we didn't, we weren't malicious about it. And so I walked out and just went, wait, that's, that, that's not the God voice. This is just a dude who, who was just confused. And yeah. so that heavy burden, oppressive thing went away. Wow. It, it was really, it was really cool. Where do you think your life would be now if your dad was there the whole time? I, you know, I, I, I do think a lot, you know, would you, would you go back in time and what would you do differently? And Lewis, my life has been such an incredible blessing. Mm-hmm. And with Betsy and the company doing so well, my writing career and uh, the community of friends that we have, you know, Betsy and I, in our first year of marriage, we had 200 overnight guests. I heard about that. And, uh, in this we, place or in another place? In this place. place. Yeah. And we actually bought the house next door and now we bought 15 acres two miles away to build essentially a retreat center that we will never charge anybody money to go to Wow! uh, because we just love hospitality. You know, so the problem with going back in time and changing something is what if I lost that? You know, what if, so if I, so I would never do it. If if I could go back and have a dad there, I I wouldn't do it. My life has just been too great. Yeah. Do you think it'd be as driven if you had a dad with like, you know, resources and information and love and affection and well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. There may be. Or... I, I read one study that was trying to find the difference between uh, C, corporate executives who do a great job with their company and corporate executives who kind of take it to the next level. And one of the, and it wasn't Jim Collins' work. It was even uh-huh. beyond that. But um, one of the characteristics of the the executives who do they extremely don't have a dad, well, right? It's like the dad leaves they grew or the poor. So yeah. a lot of them didn't have a dad. Uh, dysfunctional families. They grew up poor, and they and they probably. One, have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And two, they don't take money for granted. Yeah. You know? I mean, you probably like this. Like, unless yeah. I've got eight months worth of overhead in my business account. <laughs> I'm hustling. I'm, I'm hustling. I'm, I'm like, we're not going to be able to eat tomorrow. Exactly. My whole staff's like, what? We just, just made our best it. quarter. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, you know, we, we're going to have to buy bread. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think I heard that Obama even like lost his dad early on or yep. like his dad left at a certain age. Yeah, he was something. in Kenya and then he actually went and, and visited him in Kenya. I, if I'm not mistaken, they did interact, uh, but then his dad passed away. I think there was some, I, I'm going to butcher the statistic, but something like a third or a fourth of the presidents actually like lost their fathers at some point early on or their fathers left or something happened with their fathers. It's like a big percentage of, yeah. the, of the U.S. presidents. Yeah. And I wonder what makes us like so driven. And my father got in an accident when I was 21. Mm. He's still alive, but it's essentially like um, it's, he has amnesia and it's hard to really connect on an right. emotional level. Right. It's kind of yeah. like saying the same thing every time yeah. I see him. And I remember I always had him as like my backup plan. He was always there financially, my mentor. Yeah. He was like my biggest fan. And then all of a sudden, it's like I had to change his diapers type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And teach him how to write and talk and walk mm-hmm. and just like remind him about like everything of our lives. And it was almost like, wow, I don't have my dad to just like give me a hundred bucks in my pocket when I'm in college when I need it. His safety like, net's gone. It's gone. And he had like a company that he was like, you can come in and work for me when you're done living your dream. Like you've always got this to come back to. Yeah. And it was like, when that happened, it just made me so focused. Like, I have no other option. Like, I have to learn how to become a man, essentially. Yeah. And, like, be motivated and driven and figure things out. Yeah. And I think... So, in you, some ways, and, it's a and, blessing. And it's amazing know? that you have and, and right. you've done so well. Yeah. I think that there's a wiring 
in some guys that that takes over. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. I mean, the fatherless crisis, most guys don't pull it out. No. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they, they end up in a lot of trouble. And so I think yeah. it's, it's, you know, I mean, I think, uh, 85% of, of kids in prison or, or people in prison came, or I think it's 85% of foster kids will end up doing time at some point. You know, so that, that there's idea. There's no mentorship. There's no yeah, there's, discipline. It's not being modeled. It's yeah. just not being modeled. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. But also there's, you know, I'm with you. Some of these, you know, Josh Shipp and some of these guys mm-hmm. who just, and our president, Barack Obama, uh, Josh Hipp was in foster homes this whole 26 different foster homes. Yeah. And, uh, and they're just crushing it. And, and so I think that at some point, if you can overcome that, I mean, you know, the things that we overcome are where we get our muscle. Yeah. So if somebody doesn't have to overcome anything, it's just hard to get muscle. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have yeah. to overcome those things. But a lot, but let's not kid ourselves. Some of that weight is so heavy that it crushes guys. They, can't, they don't. It's like the adversity either turns into our advantage or our biggest obstacle yeah. forever, right? Where we yeah. become the victim for the rest of our That's lives right. until yeah. we're ready to break through. What's your biggest fear moving forward? You know, you've created so much in your life. Yeah. I think, um, I'm, I'm wrestling with questions and, and taking strides to not let this happen. But, you know, we're driven guys yes. and we're going to build our companies and we're going to impact the world and yes, all are. that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, I do not want to get to the end of my life and realize I should have spent more time with Betsy. I should have had a cr- closer group of friends. I should have taken some days off. I hate vacations. I hate them. Mm. I can't stand them. I like working. Yeah. You know, and so Betsy, you know, my marriage is so great because she's just a regulator on that engine. And, uh, you know, we're, we go to Mexico and sit on a beach and I'm just like, I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> bored, right? <laughs> I'm You're bored. Like... I'm, you know, I'm checking my phone yeah, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And, uh, my wife is beginning to change that. And oh, I had a great epiphany the other day. We, we had this trip that we had planned and, uh, getting together with a group of people up in British Columbia and it fell through. Something happened that we couldn't go. And, uh, and so Betsy and I decided, well, we're either going to go to Paris and visit some friends of hers in Paris or Norway because her friend had a baby. Mm-hmm. We're going to visit. Them. Well, Betsy chose Norway. Well, the problem is Paris, you know, the, the per- couple that we were going to visit is an interior designer, architect kind of person who could help us with the land. So I wanted to go to Paris because it helped me accomplish my goals. Yeah, to talk creatively. And there's nothing in Norway for me to accomplish. Sure, and, sure, it was, sure. and I'm like going to bed just going, I can't believe I got to do this and I got to go to Norway. And, and then um, I thought, well, no, isn't having a great marriage one of your goals? So isn't sacrificing and spending a week with your, she has wonderful friends in Norway, you know. Sure. Isn't this going to help you accomplish the goal of having a great marriage? And as soon as I was able to turn it into a meaningful goal, I went, yeah. So I'm learning, like, let's make some of those goals not about growing the business or, you know, getting on the New York Times. Let's make some of those goals actually meaningful because bottom line, the last 15 years of your life, that's all you're going to be thinking about. You're not going to be thinking about, I wish I had more money. I wish I had another half million dollars. You're not going to be thinking. Yeah. And you can't, it's funny. I interviewed a guy, uh, Donnie Deutsch, who used to have a show called the big idea. I think he sold his advertising company for about a quarter of a billion dollars. And I interviewed him and he was like, I'm in this like mega mansion in New York city by the, you know, uh, central park. And the guy has anything he wants. He knows everyone. He's like, but he was like, you know, you can't go to the bank every day and visit your money. Like, you need to have something meaningful to continue to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, relationships are a big part of that. You yeah. know, building quality relationships. Yeah. But it's like, you make enough money, it's, at the end of the day, what's the point? Yeah. And the guys who make so much money, like Steve Jobs, I'm sure he would give his billions away to have one more year or one more mm. week of his life. And he probably wouldn't spend any of that working. Exactly. With connecting with people. Connecting with folks. Yeah. So at the end of the day, yes, it's important. We live in a financial economy. You know, the economy is something we experience. Uh, and we need to master, I think, our finances. But it's also there's other areas of life as yeah. well. And use our finances to grow companies where our, where our teams are treated extremely well. Exactly. And we're, we're helping other people Pay make well. their dreams come yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. When did you realize that storytelling was going to be a big part of your life? Well, I mean, writing a movie about yourself and working with very good editors to find out what's interesting is something everybody should do yes. <laughs> if you get a chance. <laughs> you don't pass up the opportunity. So 
I studied story in order to figure out how to live a better life. And then studying story to me was like discovering how to compose music, uh, how to compel a human brain, how to uh, captivate people's attention, how to teach moral lessons. All that happens in story. Mm -hmm. And it is the most powerful tool to compel a human brain. The average human spends 30% of their time daydreaming unless they're listening to a story. Uh, stories hijack the brain. So when you're in a movie, your captivate brain... Captivate you. Mm -hmm, they captivate you. The, the movie is actually doing the daydreaming for you. You can't really think about anything else when you're... You're plugged into the Matrix. Wow. And, uh, and uh, so I, I knew it was a very powerful tool. And then I actually took the elements of story and created a marketing filter, a communication filter using them, filtered my company's messages through that filter. So we came down with very simple, bite-sized, compelling statements about what we do, why it's important to our customer, what kind of life they could have if they engage it. And we quadrupled uh, our revenue. Mm. And then my buddy said, man, you got to take this framework, share it with other businesses. And so I kind of put out feelers out there saying I was willing to take some plumber through it. Yeah. And Pantene called, Procter & Gamble called. Wow. And then Ford Lincoln called. And then Chick-fil-A called. And then uh, Berkshire Hathaway called. And then the White House called. And then... And pretty soon I realized, I think suddenly I'm a brand story consultant. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Accidentally. Everyone's calling you. Yeah, yeah. And then we killed every other aspect of what I was doing. And we built this company called Story Brand. We're about going on three years old now. And uh, it's just booming. And, and, I, and Lewis, I, I, I always wanted to be a writer, but helping other people. I've written seven books now. And they're You've all there, kind of memoir-esque. Yeah. You know, if I write an eighth memoir, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> Clinical. <laughs> it's time to stop. Sure, like sure, that, sure. that human desire to be seen, heard, and understood. I've had You've too much. That. I've had too much. <laughs> other people. So the idea of sitting down with a company. And help them tell their story. Help them tell their story is the most life-giving thing I think I've ever done. Yeah. So companies come to here to Nashville, or occasionally I'm able to fly out. And we just sit down, we look at all their marketing collateral, we look at what they want to accomplish, and we come up with, ex we usually throw out about 95% of what they're saying. Yeah. And we come up with very clear, simple, right? Simple messages. The human brain is trying to do two things. It's trying to help you survive. And help you survive means get food, get water, build social relationships, protect a tribe yourself. that can protect you, yep. uh, reproduce, all that kind of stuff is the primitive part of your brain is trying to survive. The second thing that your brain is trying to do is it's trying not to burn very many calories because your brain has a regulator on it. it. You know, thinking costs you calories. And so your brain says, look, we're trying to survive, but if this guy burns too many calories on useless information, uh, it's gonna I'm going to shut it down. Yeah, it's exhausting. I'm going to shut it down. So what that means is when you and I can communicate in a confusing way, the person that we're talked to's brain is designed to tune you out. So the reason as we record this, that Donald Trump just won a primary is not because he had amazing ideas. It's because he communicated simply. He communicated on a fourth grade level, and Jeb Bush communicated on an eighth grade level, and Jeb Bush is out of the race. Wow. And so we actually consulted with Jeb to try to help him simplify that message about two months before South Carolina, but it was too late. He didn't listen to you. Well, no, he listened. He listened <laughs> oh, but, it was but too late by then. It was too, yeah, it was too late in the wow. game. And um, so... So what companies need are short, swift sound bites repeated over and over, relevant messages. Uh, it takes a human being eight times to hear something before they actually listen. Mm -hmm. So if it takes them eight times to hear it, you need to say it about 250 times. And if it's too confusing, then they're never going to hear it. No. Or if it's too never many things intertwined. Right. Every time you communicate something about uh, the school of greatness, you're handing somebody a bowling ball. Yeah. And so you want to communicate the second thing. Now they got two bowling balls. You can commit a third thing. Now you got three bowling balls. What are they going to do when you hand them a fourth bowling drop ball? Drop it. They're going to drop everything. Yeah. And they're going to look at you and try to be polite and then try to get away. Because their nice. brain is having to burn too many calories to understand wow. what's in it for them. Everybody's going, I'm trying to survive here. I'm trying to thrive. What do you have that's going to help me? And we have to communicate in these sound bites wow. so that people can understand. What's a good example um, for maybe someone you've worked with or just like for an entrepreneur listening that could be helpful for them to understand you know, maybe they've got a long story they're always trying to communicate, sure. and then you could break it down. Maybe it's just like a, a business coach or yeah. know, something well, like that. Most businesses, we've worked with about 1,500 companies taking them through this process now. And most businesses make the same mistake. They talk about themselves. And the reality is you're not the hero of the story. Your customer is the hero of the story. You're the guide. They're Luke Skywalker. You're Yoda. This is stuff that Nancy Duarte has been yeah, teaching for a long great. time. She's amazing. 
And she teaches that from a perspective of giving speeches, but it's true in all of our communication. So that's the first thing, is when I go to your website, it needs to be about the customer, not about you. So, for instance, we work with a gentleman named Kyle Schultz, and he has a, a website called Schultz, Schultz Photo School. And he was a firefighter, uh, and but loved to teach photography to parents so they could take good pictures of their kids. Mm, that's cool. And he would say stuff on his website, like, I'll teach you how F-stop works, and I'll teach you all this inside language. And he bought our course, and he went through it. And he made, before he bought our course, he made $28,000 in a launch, which is great. You know, it's good yeah. money. Uh, and then he, he started saying, instead of like, I'll teach you to use F-stop, he said, I'll teach you to take those pictures where the back, background is blurry. He started communicating and not asking people. fourth grade level terms. At a fourth whatever, grade yeah, level. Yeah. Not yeah. asking people to burn very many calories. Simple. And, oh, I like that. Depth of feel. I like the blurry look. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he would never even use the, the phrase depth of feel until right. you bought the course. Right. And then he would explain That blurry thing that I talked about yeah, is depth of feel. exactly yeah. it. So nobody's having to work very hard mm-hmm. to understand. And he, you know, he took his website, probably took 75% of the words off of his website, launched the day after he bought our course, stayed up all night making the changes that we recommended, and made $103,000 on his second launch. Wow. Michael Hyatt came through it, made a quarter million dollars on five days of your best year ever. I took him through the story brand framework. He simplified his message, did 1.5, I think, sure. on the next launch. And, um, you know, on and on. We're just seeing dramatic results. Because if you have a great product and you got great people and you got great processes, you should have a great business. There's only one thing missing. You're not positioned in the marketplace so that people can actually understand what you offer. Yeah. You think you are, but you're not. And so we have to go through those websites and we use this seven part filter to say this goes, this goes, this goes, let's keep this. Uh, wow. Very simple language and revenues go up. It's all about the story, right? It's all about the story. It's all about understanding the story of your customer and playing a role inside their story. Making them the heroes, that you said? What do they want? What's their external problem? How's that problem making them feel? That's the internal problem. How are you positioning yourself as the guide? What's the plan to help them to to, to destroy the Death Star, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, How are you calling them to action? What is their life going to look like if they don't buy your product or service? What's the failure the What's price the tragedy, the price they're going to pay, and then what's the happy ending to their story? What's their life going to look like if they do? Those are the seven questions that you have to answer. And if you can't answer them, your brand message is confusing. I guarantee it, and you're losing money. You might get results still, but it may not be the maximum results. You we can love get. customers with a great product that get great, that gets great results, and they're confused. They're confusing their communication. The reason we love them is we know that we can fix it, tweak and, a little bit, and they're going to see a hockey stick. Wow! So story is really a big part of everything. It's all about story. Yeah, it's all about story. Huh. Not what? What's your story? What's the story of your customer, and how are you playing a role in that story? Most people that they think we got to get my our story out there, you don't. You don't. No. If you if I'm sitting down, we with need you, press. We need to get our story out there. We need our story told. Yeah, we need our story told. You don't need your story told. You need to. You need to. Uh, talk about the thing that you have that your customer wants. It's all about understanding their story. So if I get into an elevator and, uh, and with you, and, and let's say I need some inspiration and practical tips on mm-hmm. increasing productivity so that I can become a great athlete or whatever. Yes. You've got something I need in that elevator. Yeah, yeah. You do. <laughs> and, and I say, Lewis, what do you do? And you say, well, uh, I work for a company. My grandfather started the company. You've lost me. Right. When if you would have said... Uh, Don, a lot of people don't feel like a champion, but I can find the champion within them and bring it out of them. And I've got some tools to do. Now I'm interested. I'm asking for your business card. But what's <laughs> really? the difference? Yeah, the difference yeah. is you didn't tell me your story. You told me my story. What people are looking for. You identified my problem, and you painted a picture of a happy ending. Mm. Now I want your business card. What's the most powerful word someone can use when telling a story? What's the most powerful word somebody can use in telling a story? I don't know. That's a, you know, the books that I read on story are like 800 pages, <laughs> 800 pages long. I was thinking of imagine uh, when you can uh, paint this, when you can kind of paint the, the story by saying imagine. Oh, that's a beautiful word. And stories are all about, uh, you know, what ifs. So I used to do this experiment, uh, when I was writing. If I got stuck, I would say, well, let's come up with 25 what ifs right now. Yeah. Uh, what if, uh, the guy got pulled over and he had something in his car. What if a meteor hit the earth? What if, and usually one of those what ifs would go, okay, I'm going to write that one. But the cool mm-hmm. thing is it works in life. Yeah. You know, you're having a, you're having a bad day and what if I quit my job? 
What if I went camping this weekend? What if I asked that girl out? What if I sold the house? What if? Mm-hmm. And one of those, you're going to go, man, that's piqued my interest. Well, mm-hmm. listen, pay attention to that. Sure, sure. Because that's a story guiding you somewhere. Yeah, else, right. I like that. Uh, a few questions left for you. Um, if you had a, a half a page to a page that you could write out the story of the rest of your life, mm. everything that you want to create or be or do or the people in your life, whatever it may be, and you have to write it out and everything you wrote down actually came true. Oof. What would be on that page, a couple paragraphs? Well, I wouldn't want it to magically come true because that's not a good story. I'd want Let's say there would be struggle. You're going to have to work for it. Yeah. You're going to have to work really hard. Yeah. But if you could have anything and create any story that would come to life, like was it like Jungle Book? Is that like what's yeah. the is it Jumanji or Jungle Book? What's the one where they write the book and it's like happening in real life? Oh yeah, I think that might be Jumanji. Yeah. One of those. <laughs> Anyways, but if you could actually write it down, you got a whole page to write yeah. down everything that happened. Yes, there's struggle and you're gonna work hard, but what would you create? Well, um, I've got a, about a ten year run with this company, Story Brand. Uh, we want to scale it. Uh, to 25 million within a few years and 100 million by the end of 10 years. Uh, there are two paths if we can do that. Uh, if that happens, then there are two. There's a fork in the road at the end of that journey. Gotcha. And the fork in the road goes two let's, ways. Let's say there's there's. So if that happens, let's say yeah, whatever you want is going to happen. Well, you the, could have everything you wanted. The fork in the road is I either. You know, we've got some land up here in Tennessee. I'm going to build a big treehouse on that land, and I'm Ooh. going to go into that treehouse, and I'm going to write novels for the rest of my life. My wife likes that plan. I like that idea. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm going to homeschool the kids and write novels. That's what I'm going to do, and ride around on a four-wheeler. That sounds cool. Uh, that is really scary because I don't know if I have what it takes to be a good novelist. I know I have what it takes to be a good writer of, you know, books, but mm-hmm. novels are different. And uh, so that's scary. The other route would be that I run for office, and it's a completely different route. Uh, but to be able to serve, you know, to have learned to lead and learned to run a company and learned about the economy and, and to be inside of D.C. a little bit to some degree, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to be a statesman and help a population come back from victim identity to hero identity mm-hmm. uh, would be a great serving you know, a way to serve to, in that season of my life. And uh, so those decisions I'll make in 10 years. I think unless we build the company, um, I'm probably not qualified to lead at that level. I need to prove myself right. in the private sector and and prove that I, I can build something yeah. and, uh, and do all the things you have to do to do that. So, though, so at some point, 10 years from now, because I do believe we're going to accomplish our goals. Mm-hmm. We always do. You know, it's just work. That's it. And, uh, and time. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to go, do I want to be hated for the rest of my life for trying to serve America or do I want to go up in here and write a novel? Exactly. And, uh, do you want everyone to hate you or love you? <laughs> exactly. We'll see. We'll see. Wow. I like it. Um, if there's one story you could tell that you're only allowed to share one story, that's maybe not your story, but an inspiring uh, story from a novel or some type of... Um, story that you heard in your past yeah that really leaves a good message or has a good inspiration or yeah sets a good principle what's that story there's a um i mean there i, I would only share this i would choose this story knowing that other more important stories are out there being told sure, to sure. hopefully somebody would cover the gospel and all that kind of stuff. sure 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 uh there's a story that's just been so inspiring to me and so hopeful to me i i've fallen in love with the israeli palestinian uh issue and, and the Israeli people and Palestinian people. I don't know why. I just love that mm-hmm. region of the world and have been over many times. And, um, and on one trip, we met with Israeli guards or Israeli generals and members of Knesset and also members of the PLO on the Palestinian side in the West Bank. And, you know, there's a lot of tension there. Yeah. And I came away thinking, this might be a hopeless situation. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they, they just can't seem to compromise on any of this stuff mm-hmm. and, and with good reasons on both sides. And I read the story in the New York Times about some, one of the things that we kept hearing in the West Bank is we just wish we could go to the ocean because they're locked in. Mm-hmm. They're not going anywhere. Right. We just wish we could see the ocean. It's just right there. <laughs> we can't get to it. Wow. Because the walls that the Israelis have built up. And um, there were these Jewish women in Jerusalem. I mean, just 
just you know like you know our wives you know your girlfriends just jewish women who who'd uh who kept hearing these about these palestinian women and they, they couldn't go to the ocean so they drove into the west bank these women and they started befriending palestinians and got to know some palestinian women and kind of dressed them up in costumes mm. and because they were jewish they didn't get stopped at the checkpoints right. and they got them out of the West Bank. Wow. And and they would literally just take them to the ocean. Wow. <laughs> they'd all just go swimming for the day. They'd put them back in the car. They'd take them back home. And it, these women just started going in there, finding women who wanted to go swimming, and take them to the ocean. And I just thought, you know, beneath our leaders who are doing a decent job keeping mm-hmm. us all safe, there's this, there's this heart in human beings that wants to break through that conflict and compromise. And uh, I just always have thought, you know, Don, at, at the core, problems really are, they can be resolved. Mm. Uh, you know, if you find the people who are, who are tender and willing to take action and do something. Yeah. So I, I just love that story. That's I think it's cool. the only story. If I could only tell one story, I'd probably just go around telling that one. Because it applies cool. to so many sure, sure. things. You know? I like that. If you had an, if I was able to grant you an unlimited amount of money right now to solve one problem in the world. Hmm. It was like, here's a trillion dollars or however much it costs, here's the money. Yeah. You only get one challenge or issue to tackle. What thing would you cure or solve in the world today? Yes, I would, uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza, I would start uh, schools, and th- th- we're actively trying to do this. We're, yeah. we're starting conversations to do this in the next 10 years uh, for young Muslim girls. And I would want those girls to be educated. I'd want them to go on to college. Uh, it is actually very possible for uh, young Muslim women to get a degree in the West Bank and, and go to Harvard mm. or Yale wow. or, or Oxford, any of those schools. I think that, uh, you know, if we can solve some of the problems in the Middle East, we can solve a lot of the problems in the world. And I think educating young Muslim women... Uh, is a very strategic chess move mm. in that long-term play. Yeah. And so that's what I would want to focus on. That's cool. The more of them we can educate, the better the world's going to be. That's great. Yeah. Okay, final couple of questions. I already said that, but final couple of questions. What are you most grateful for in your life recently? Oh, my wife, relationships, mm-hmm. uh, family. Uh, you know, I lost my mom last year. You know, have some friends who've lost uh, family members. And so the older you get, you know, you hit that 44, you start getting to that age where, you know, you start for the first time in your life, you realize we don't have a whole lot of time here. Right. <laughs> We've got to get moving. You almost hit that third quarter. Yep. Coming and, up. Uh, yeah. and so, uh, you know, just those relationships, the core, I can come home and I like coming home. Yeah. There's not tension in my home. There's, you know, That's it's, nice. it's, it's, it's rest. Uh, I don't take that for granted, or I try not to. Sure. Yeah. I like it. This is a question I ask at the end. It's called the three truths. Mm. And I didn't prep you for this. So, no. so for whatever comes off the top of your mind, it's cool. So let's say it is many, many years from now, and it's your last day. And mm. everything is good. You've accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish. That whole story that you just told me earlier, all that was that happened. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, the 100 books that you wrote have now been erased for whatever reason. Mm. They've all been erased. Everything you've ever created is gone. And your great-great-great-grandchild comes to you with a piece of paper and a pen and says, will you write down three truths, the three things you know to be true about everything you learned in your life that you would pass on to us? If it came down to three simple lessons, Mm. what would you write down? Well, if it's a grandchild, I'm speaking to somebody. I'm trying to give them some wisdom, right? Uh, Let's say it's for the world, though. This is your piece of your three truths that you'd give to anyone. Yeah. Um, I I would write, you're probably not a victim. Uh, I would write, it's hard to understand sometimes, but God loves you. Mm. Uh, And then I would write, this is I'm stealing this from my buddy Bob Goff, but he always talks about his eight guys. And his eight guys, the eight guys are going to carry his coffin. And uh, mm-hmm. I would write, know who your eight guys are. Ooh. Yeah. Just gave me the chills. That's a good one. I like that. I've got four. Wow. I've got, got four. four guys. I know who four of them are. Wow. And there are plenty more who would step in, but I know I know who four of them are. Wow. So I've got about 
40 more years. To, to figure out the other four. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Before I ask the final question, where can, uh, where should we connect with you? Where do you hang out most online? What's the main site we should go to? Yeah, storybrand.com is yep. everything I'm doing now. Storybrand.com. My podcast is Building a Story Brand. That's at buildingastorybrand.com. Yep. And you can listen to that. Uh, and Amazon has all my books. All your books. And where do you, do you hang out on social media at all? Where do you? Yeah, I'm Instagram at Don Miller is. If you really like want to see the personal side of life, yeah. Instagram. Instagram, that's great. If you want to know what my blog is about today, Twitter. Gotcha, <laughs> you know? gotcha. But yeah, cool. So awesome. Don, Mil- Don Miller is on Instagram and Donald Miller on Twitter. Okay, cool. We'll have it all linked up here in the show notes uh, just after this. Uh, and before I ask the final question, Don, I want to acknowledge you for a moment. And I want to acknowledge you for your courage. You know, you went through childhood without a father. And I know what it's like to kind of lose a father even mm-hmm. at 22. And it's not an easy experience. And for you to create the incredible work, the body of work that you have, and impact the millions of people you have with I'm sure the insecurities and the challenges you faced internally growing up, I can only imagine the amount of internal pain that you were feeling a lot of the times. So I want to acknowledge you for understanding that you are an incredible gift and the incredible gifts that you've been given to all of us. It's truly amazing and inspiring to, to connect with you and be able to be, you know, around your work. It's amazing. Yeah. So I want to acknowledge you for the Man, gift that you thank have. Thank you. That's very kind yeah, of you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Of course. The final question is, what's your definition of greatness? Ooh. <laughs> uh, you know, Lewis, you've done such a good job bringing that word mm-hmm. back into our vocabulary and making it an inspiration. Uh, I just think, you know, I, I mean, you know, I just think, I love what you're doing. Thank you. And I, and it's, it, what you're guiding people through is Victor Frankl's logotherapy, getting them off the couch, giving mm-hmm. them an ambition and helping them step into a story. Yeah. Um, there's a feeling uh, that happens when you, when you watch a great movie. We all know it. And when it's a great movie, everybody in the theater sits there for an extra few minutes. American Sniper, everybody sat oh, there for an extra all the way few to the end of the all credits. All the way in the credits. And, uh, that feeling, as I've tried to identify what that is, is gratitude. And it's not just gratitude for the actors or for the story. It's a good story makes you feel like life can be better than you thought. That you could actually do things with these ingredients that are better than you ever dreamed. That's what a good story does to you. It, it yeah. makes you think we can, we can do better than this. You know, we, we, life can be more meaningful. I think, my definition of greatness would be at your funeral, people feel that way about your story. Not that they're grateful for you, but they're grateful that you showed them life could be better than they thought. Mm. It could be more beautiful. It could be more meaningful. You could accomplish more. Your relationships could be deeper. You could have a bigger impact. You know, uh, let there be just this great chasm that is filled by gratitude when you leave. Mm. You know, to me, that's greatness. And the sad thing is, uh, you won't hear it when people tell you. You'll be gone. Yeah. You know? But let's head there. Let's head there. I like it. Don Miller, right. thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. It. Okay. And there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode with my friend Donald Miller. Make sure to check out the full show notes, the full video interview, all the images that we captured of Donald as well over at lewishouse.com slash 332. And make sure to connect with Donald on all of his social media. Check out his website. Check out his latest books. All the links and resources will be back at lewishouse.com slash 332. If you enjoyed this, please share it with your friends. Tweet this out. Post it on Facebook. Email a friend and let them know. Again, the link is lewishouse.com slash 332. Let's make sure to get the word out there about this and spread the love for Donald. If you enjoyed this one, make sure to spread the love. Again, guys, we all have a story to tell. We all have a story that has yet been written. What story do you want to tell? How do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to talk about you when you're gone? You have the choice, you have the power, you have a decision to write a new story every single day. I would love for you to write down what you want your story to be. Take a moment right now and post in the comment section below this over on the blog, on the YouTube channel, and write down one paragraph about how you want to live the rest of this year. 
how you want to live the rest of this year, the big goals you have, write them down. How will your story be told? You have the power, you have the choice to write it all out and make it come true. So make sure to do that right now and start embedding your vision for the future in your own story writing today. I love you guys. I appreciate you so very much. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing inspections negotiating analyzing the market and talking through any anxieties that may pop up that can make all the difference that's what the expertise of a realtor can do for you realtors are members of the national association of realtors and bound by a code of ethics because that's who we are Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.